Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to join us today and even more grateful that you consider yourselves to be part of our community here. In this second week of Lent, we continue on in our series, Old Creed, New World. And today, we focus specifically on the phrase, was crucified, died, and was buried. The Apostles' Creed gives us only a few short words to the event at the center of so much Christian teaching, the death of Jesus. But what does Jesus' death mean for us, and how has it been understood through history? These are two of the questions that we ask and explore today during our teaching. At the end of today's teaching, Jason leads our community into the practice of Eucharist, or communion. If you would like to join us in this practice as you're listening to the podcast, just make sure to have some sort of cracker or bread and some form of wine or juice. And when we get there, you can enter into this practice knowing that this is the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Before we get there, though, just a few reminders of things happening in the life of our community. As always, if you consider South Bend City Church to be your home, you can give. It's through your generosity that we're able to do the things that we're able to do. And so if you're looking to give and be a part of our community in that way, you can jump into the show notes below and there's a link to our website that will lead you through the steps. But today, before we get to the teaching and Eucharist, we wanted to give an update on the Tribune project. The Tribune is going to be our new home here, hopefully by the end of the year. And as always, we like to keep you updated on what's happening with that, as well as everything going on in the life of our church. So this weekend, Jason, our lead pastor, and Matt, our executive pastor, gave us an update on where the project stands today. If you're looking for more information about the Tribune Project, you can go to thetribuneproject.com and check out all of the resources there. If you're simply looking to listen to the teaching, you can jump down to the show notes below and find the minute marker for that. All right, South Bend City Church, let's jump in with the rest of our community now. So a lot of you know that in addition to our life uh, here at Studebaker on Sundays and the things that we do all week long as a community, we've got another big project right now. It's called the Tribune Project. It's our effort uh, to purchase and renovate and reclaim an empty building in the heart of downtown South Bend. It was formerly the printing press building of the South Bend Tribune. A lot of you have already seen it. It's that blue peaked building right across the street from the Taco Bell downtown. The Taco Bell seems to be the primary orientation point for many in this community. So. That hopefully is helpful. Uh, so we've been working on this for quite a while now. Today we wanted to give you some update, a little reminder of where we've been, where we're at, and where we're headed right around the corner on that project. Uh, first of all, a little bit of like recent history. Uh, last summer, thanks to a bunch of you, we bought the building, we own it, uh, and we started making our way toward the renovations that'll make it not just a great home for us, but a home for community partners working on common good all week long in the city of South Bend. So we're on our way in the project. However, last summer, the other thing that happened is that the renovation costs escalated dramatically. I know this is a review for some of you, uh, but last summer we found out that, um, for example, um, supply chain issues and increased material costs were like weighing in on that. And if you've been working on any kind of a building project yourself in the last year, you know it's been kind of crazy lately. Uh, the other thing that happened is as we analyzed the project at a more detailed level, we realized that some of the demolition that we were gonna wait till phase two or three to work on were parts of the building that we're not gonna renovate right away. Well, if you wait to do that demolition during phase two or three, you end up having to spend a lot more money to do it because phase one work makes phase two demo harder, essentially, right? So anyway, uh, all that added up to a financial gap. Um, we looked at the mortgage that we have with the bank plus the money that we all have given and the money that we all have pledged. And then we looked at the cost, and there was a gap there. 
Um, fortunately, um, we've been able to close that gap. One way that we closed that gap was that some of you kicked in more. Maybe you hadn't made a commitment and then you made a financial commitment, or maybe you had already committed, but you added to what you were able to give to the project. So that's amazing, thank you. Uh, the other way that we closed that gap is we adapted some of our plans for the renovation. Uh, Matt, will you kind of like refresh us on when we move into the building phase one, what do we get? Like what's gonna be done? Yeah, so right now we have we're actually working on all the architectural drawings for all phases. That way, uh, in, in future phases, we can actually work on stuff that needs to happen now for future phases, so we can kind of rough in some of that stuff. So there's three phases. Uh, phase one would be uh, actually renovating the whole first floor, uh, or most of the first floor, as well as like the courtyard loading dock area. The loading dock will actually turn into um, a main entranceway with stairs, ramps, some outdoor space. Uh, to be able to gather and connect in as well as be the main entrance. And then the first floor, uh, phase one, would be um, a future lobby in phase two, but that lobby actually would become our gathering area in phase one. That area is actually the roughly the same square footage as the room we're sitting in right now. Um, and then we would also be able to renovate the kids' space uh, in phase one. Um, most of the rooms there that allow us to be able to have a secure space for our kids. Phase two, would then be like the big cathedral um, uh, room that's on the second floor, and then phase three would be kind of like dream phase, like uh, rooftop terrace, that type of thing. Yeah, so I mean, this is great news. Like, thanks to you all, uh, and thanks to Matt's work, like, we've got a way to get in the building with the means that we have on hand for this first phase of the project, so that's awesome. Uh, however, now we have a timeline gap. Um, the way this works is if we were to sign the construction contract today to initiate all the renovations, we would probably be looking at a move-in date of like roughly uh, September or October, this fall right. sometime. Um, but here's the thing, like when you move in, you have to pay for everything. Like the builder's not gonna be like, yeah, keep paying on the renovations um, like for months on end. The way that we're funding this in addition to the mortgage is a bunch of us have made financial commitments and we've made the promise to, make the, to pay those commitments uh, between now and April of 2024. It was like a two-year giving period that we're using to raise all this money. So I don't know about you, I know like for me, the way that I came up with my commitment number is I didn't liquidate my massive stock assets because I don't have any, right? Like, like I, some, some of us were able to do that kind of thing. A lot of us, the way that we made our financial commitment is we looked at our monthly budget and we maybe moved some things around, cut some things, made some sacrifices and said, well, you know, I can, I can carve out this much in my monthly income and spending to give to the project. And I took that number times 24 months because we're doing two years of giving. And that's how I came up with my number, which means like me personally, I won't be able to fulfill my full commitment until April of 2024. But again, if we move in September 2023, we have to have all the money. So, uh, so we're working on this. Um, one of the ways that we're working on that is a bridge loan, which would be a secondary financing instrument. It'd be a short-term only loan where you'd pay like interest only for a period of time. And the goal would be to pay off that secondary bridge loan by the time we get to next April. Matt, can you explain like where we've been on the bridge loan process and where we are today? Yeah, so this project, there's a number of variables. You have, you have cost, you have time, you have people and community partnerships, um, and you have place, which is what we're, we're after. So on the, on the cost standpoint, again, we narrowed that gap, but then the, the time, like Jay said, there's a gap there. So we've been looking at a bridge loan with our bank. Uh, started that process in December, um, and then we just found out a couple weeks ago that our banker went to another bank. So it made us start the process kind of all over again in terms of building relationships and talking through our financials. 
Um, so we just felt like it was a great opportunity to give you an update in terms of like, hey, here's where we're at. We're still waiting on an answer on the bridge loan. Um, in talking with our board, uh, we will not sign our construction contract until we know that that gap and that funding um, is taking place. So we're looking at other options as well. And if you know of any options or have alternative ways to be able to like uh, pay for that gap that we would have between roughly October and April, um, that would be helpful. Yeah, another note, it is the case um, if you're able to, you know, make quick progress on your financial commitment, maybe, maybe you're in a situation where it doesn't matter if you give what you were going to give next year or this year. It does make a difference on our end if you're able to give early. It just kind of gets us closer to that. Uh, right now, based on our projections, it looks like that bridge loan is like roughly $500,000 if you're wondering what kind of scope that we're looking at. And like Matt said, we'd love to hear from you if you have any other ideas about how we could solve that problem. Uh, there's one other gap to talk about, which is uh, maybe you know our lease here ends in June. And I just talked to you about maybe moving in in September. Uh, so what do we do with the gap? Well, one thing we did is we reached out to a bunch of you. Uh, a little while ago, we sent out a survey to our stakeholders. And by stakeholder, we mean anyone who sort of helps make South Bend City Church happen. And so this is volunteers and financial supporters. Hopefully, if, if that's you, hopefully you got the email. We worked really hard to make sure that those lists were strong. However, sometimes you know, junk filters catch things. Uh, but we, we sent the survey to just ask people, like, what matters most to you during that transitional period? How do we honor what we value most as a community? And one of the really clear things that came back in that feedback was, it really matters that we find a way to consistently meet on Sundays together during that gap. So we as a team, I think we're like, okay, cool. We have our marching orders now. We understand kind of hearing from you what it is that we prioritize during that season. And so we've got some, uh, some good news about what that's probably going to look like. Matt, can you sort of explain what we've explored and what we've landed on? Yeah, one thing I love about this community is the flexibility to be able to gather in a variety of spaces. And so we've looked at uh, considerations at like parks during summer months, being able to gather there. We've looked at hotel conference spaces. Um, we've talked with other organizations that have a considerable amount of space for us to, uh, to gather in, either in the city or even other places. Um, and we've likewise been also talking with our landlord about that. And there's another tenant that has, is looking like they're going to move into this space um, that would be a school. And so in conversations with that school and with our landlord, it uh, looks like we'd be able to actually stay in this space um, making some alternative arrangements in terms of time that we would be able to be utilize this space on Sunday and Thursday evenings, uh, but then during the course of the week, that wouldn't uh, be the case. At a considerable less cost than what we're doing right now with our lease, so it'd actually be a fourth of what we pay in our, our lease because we wouldn't be using uh, the building as much. Um, there would be, need, need to be some adjustments in terms of kids' spaces, uh, in terms of what's in the rooms, there might need to be some setup teardown, but at this point, for the foreseeable future, we feel pretty good that we could um, stay in this spot for now. Yeah, and just to be really clear, if what you just heard was, wait, we could just stay here? No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying we're working out a very complicated short-term arrangement that I think will accomplish our primary needs for a short period of time. But that doesn't mean that all of a sudden we could have just stayed here. That was never the case. It's not the case now. I don't want to be confused about why we're putting all this investment into the Tribune, not just for our church, but for our community, right? Uh, a couple other notes. Uh, maybe you're like hearing about this for the first time or you weren't here 
when we got started on the project and you want to get involved. Uh, one, it's never too late to be a financial partner on the project. Uh, if you want to make a gift to it, you can. If you want to make a commitment, you can. Just go to thetribuneproject.com. We've got a really great website that tells the whole story of the project. It explains the project finances. It gives the vision for the, the building and the fly-through. Uh, and let us know if you have any questions about that by just emailing info at southbendcitychurch.com. We also have other ways to get involved. Money is not the only way to be a part of this. A lot of us, I think, we just want to get our hands on the project physically. And so we've got another work day coming up. We'd love to get you into the building. It's coming up on Saturday, March 25th. Uh, disclaimer here, um, this is probably obvious if you think about it, but the building's neither safe for kids nor accessible if you have some mobility challenges. Of course, the whole point is to get the building to the point where it is great for everyone. But right now, it's an industrial space that hasn't been renovated, and so we want to make sure that the people who show up are going to be safe in the building. Matt, anything else we can know about the workday? Yeah, workday, March 25th, um, variety of skill levels. And even I would just say if you want to see the building, sometimes people look at the drawings and say, oh, man, that's a really, looks like a really glossy space. Just come visit it, and you'll see. It's not. <laughs> it, it's not. Um, and so there's a variety of ways you can help out. Already, uh, people have given financially to this project, which is, which is really amazing. But people have also given other ways in terms of um, relationships with contractors and the ability to actually uh, get materials at a lower rate. People have made connections in the city with city partnerships and community partners. Um, a variety of ways that this community is giving back. So if you have ideas, thoughts, connections, um, ways to, this morning I was talking to a guy who said, yeah, I'll bring a lift over there and you can change this light bulb. Like, it's a real gift. Like, that's something we don't have to pay for in the future. So um, would love for your participation that way. Yeah, and that's 10 a.m. 10 a.m. On the 25th. 10 to, 10 to 1. Yeah. yeah, awesome. So that's the update. Uh, one more note, though. Um, even today, hopefully, you've gathered, uh, there's been a ton of work. I mean, just a mountain of work that's gone into this project. Uh, today, what you're not hearing about, someday before long, we'll get to tell you more about the kind of community partnership stuff that's developing and the vision for downtown that's highly collaborative with the city and other faith communities who are going to be our direct neighbors down there. So there's lots more that'll, that'll be there to celebrate and to tell you about. But in all of that effort, uh, Matt is leading all of that and putting so much into it. And he's not often up here to say thank you to him, but I think you want to say thanks to Matt, right? Yeah. Let's do a little storytelling. I want to hear from you uh, around a particular question. I say storytelling, we got to keep it a little bit brief. I fear the prompt may elicit deep riches of narrative from you. But we may not have time for all that, but I do, I do want to hear from you. Here's the question. What's something someone did for you that helped you know you were loved? Something somebody did, an action, a way that they showed up that in your bones or in your heart, you knew, wow, I think this is an expression of their love for me. I'll give you my example, and then I'll go around and open it up just to see what you say. But this is just to kind of prime the pump for us, if you will. Uh, a few years ago, I stumbled into a photo on my phone recently that reminded me of, of this moment, and it really moved me all over again. So uh, 2017, uh, after 14 really good years with my beloved golden retriever, Jack, uh, it was time to say goodbye, and that was a really hard goodbye for me. He was... Um, very, very special to me, just like my buddy, you know? Big old 90 pounds of hair and slobber and affection, right? Um, I like my dogs codependent. I like us to really need each other, and he performed that in spades, right? So saying goodbye was very hard. 
uh, one of my best friends who had lived with me in an earlier season when I had Jack, and so he lived with Jack too. Uh, at that time when Jack died, uh, he was living in Chicago, he was married. Uh, he and his wife were going through a very busy, hectic season. Uh, they were uh, deep into the work of fostering uh, with kids in their home, and that was beautiful and um, really demanding for them. And it was one of those weeks where they didn't have any margin, and yet, uh, I'll never forget like, like pulling up to South Bend Airport and him getting off the South Shore train and showing up for an evening so that we could just kind of like say goodbye to Jackie Boy together. Uh, we went over to campus at Notre Dame, which is where I used to take Jack on walks at sunset in the, during the summer just to enjoy the peacefulness there. And I took Jack's collar and his leash, and uh, we walked around campus together and smoked some cigars by the lake there and kind of said goodbye to him. I found that picture on my phone just the other day and thought about um, my buddy's investment of time and, and showing up like that and just how deeply loved I felt through that. So that's my story. Uh, anybody else? Anybody got a moment? T- yeah, tell, tell us. I was given a place to sleep when I didn't have one. Oh, that's, I was given a place to sleep when I didn't have one. Yeah, yeah, thanks. What else? Yeah. She doesn't even know that I know it. Oh, wow. I'll say that again in case you didn't hear. Michelle said, when you're 12, your parents split up. Your dad gets remarried. When you're 14 one night, you're in bed. For all they know, you're asleep. But you hear your stepmom walk in, and she just kisses you on the head. And you have this sense that she doesn't even know that you know she's doing this. It was just that she loved you, and she was treating you like one of her own, right? Yeah, amazing. Thank you. What else? Yeah. Oh, we'll take that. You say your grandparents take good care of you. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You take good care of us, too. I don't know if you saw them greeting out there this morning, but yeah, thank you. Yeah, right? Yeah. What else? Yeah. If you didn't hear it, I'll say it again. She said, you've taken your, whole, your husband on a roller coaster of a ride emotionally and whatnot. And you said that he's stayed with you for how long? Well, let's see. I've known him for 57 years. 57 years they've known each other and been together. He That's, should have left long ago. He should have left long ago, but he hasn't. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, what else? Yeah. Oh, man, that's amazing. If you didn't hear that, a couple years ago, her kids invented Christmas Mother's Day, recognizing that moms do a lot of work on Christmas. The next day, they treat mom with breakfast in bed just to honor what mom gave. A lot of other kids better be taking notes right now. (laughs) The bar has been raised. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. She said uh, she has, uh, she's estranged from her six youngest siblings due to actions that her parents took. And she has a friend who knows all six of those siblings' names and asks you about them by name. 
Beautiful. Thank you. Let me get that far. Uh, Angela said a lot of people may assume that Angela is a wellspring of confidence, but that in fact you are plagued by wicked, bad imposter syndrome. And it never fails. The moments where I'm questioning and doubting everything, mm. someone in my life who knows me and loves me and sees me will say, doubt this. It never fails. The moments when you're doubting, Somebody who knows you, loves you, sees you, will reach out and tell you you've got this. Awesome. Yeah, yes, sir. I lost all, all my brothers and sisters, and there's people that have some friends that uh, treat me like a brother. Huh. I love that. Gary said he's lost all of his brothers and sisters, but there are people who treat him like a brother because you're family. Um, yes. That's awesome. I love hearing that. Uh, maybe one or two more? Yeah, back there. Oh, that's amazing. If you didn't hear that, Willow's youngest, who you described as the craziest, most fun, also chaotic in the household, uh, had heard that you guys had a goal to work out for six days in a row. And this morning, she's the one who got you up so that you would have time to get the workout in before church. That's awesome. I love hearing that. Yeah, right here. So last summer, I transitioned male to female, mm -hmm. and I was really anxious about coming out, especially to my more extended family, my cousins, my aunts and uncles, my grandparents. But actually, when I came out, they were all just really supportive. I got a lot of messages of love and support that summer. And I think when it was my birthday later that year, and I got a card from my grandma, from my grandparents that said granddaughter, it actually made me cry. Oh, wow. If you didn't hear that, Imara said last summer, yeah, you transitioned from male to female. And with the extended family, the grandparents, all those, you weren't sure how that would go. But it was all loving support. And you got a, a, a birthday card from, was it grandmother? from your grandmother calling you her granddaughter. And that really meant a lot to you. Yeah, that's beautiful, thank you. Uh, maybe we'll leave, that's a good one to end on, yeah? Uh, well, or not to end, but we'll kind of carry forward from there, okay? Um, the reason I wanted to check in on these stories is I, I think they'll ground us for where we're at in the creed today. Uh, since last fall, we've uh, been talking about these two words to, in particular, we believe. Um, these are the first two words of the Apostles' Creed. We've reminded ourselves that this ancient document that shapes Christian communities into who we are and what story we trust, uh, it's probably best rendered we, not I, because this is a big story that it tells. And I'm not sure any one of us is really meant to carry it all on our own, and there are days when I believe parts of it more than I believe other parts of it. But together, we are becoming the people who trust this story. Believe, by the way, is not just a word for the head, but a, a word for the heart, uh, that we beloved this story, that we give our heart to this story. Um, so we've called this series Old Creed, New World because we, we've wanted to hear this, this ancient way of narrating scripture and faith. It's a way of understanding God and the world that we live in and our place within all of that. It's, it's old, but we're, also, we're trying to set it in conversation with the world that we're living in right now. And the case that I'm trying to make over and over again with this is this isn't about just like regressing back in time to some old worldview. 
It's also not about just sort of going along with whatever we feel or think right now. It's, it's rather this really creative, interesting thing that happens when you set this ancient um, story, this ancient creed in conversation with the world we're living in right now. So we've done a lot since last September. You can go back and listen to it on the podcast. We've talked about creation and evolution, and maybe they aren't enemies as much as like science has given us a gift in understanding how it is that God made all this beauty around us. We've talked about some of the tricky language around like father and like all those issues there. We've talked about the profound meaning of Jesus being born in Mary's body. We worked that out through Advent. And now in Lent, we're moving to the part of the creed that describes uh, the events that will commemorate during Holy Week, which is right around the corner here. So today, the line that we hear from the creed is this, that we believe in Jesus Christ, who was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, I don't know if you've been around the Christians very much, but big fans of this line in the creed. There's like a lot of action, a lot of heart, a lot of energy, a lot of concern, a lot of priority put on this moment in Jesus' story and in Christian theology, Right? Uh, obviously, many, if not most, Christian spaces will have some form of a cross hanging in their room. I mean, I'm up here talking to you right now, and I carry a small little metal sort of figure of this scene around my neck because of my own personal encounter with it and what it has meant to me. Uh, a lot of preaching goes deep into talking about this moment in Jesus' life when he's crucified, died, and was buried. And the thing about all the preaching and the thing about a lot of the scriptures and the thing about a lot, like the songs that we sing and the ways that Christians interact with this is that a lot of it ends up explaining like why this happened and what happened when he did, right? Because if it's just he was crucified, died, and buried and we leave that there without any, any meaning around it, it might leave you wondering why this is an important part of the story. But when you hear Christians talk about this part of the story, it seems like it might be the most important part of the story. So let's talk about this part of the story for a moment. Um, there's a lot of scripture that sort of unpacks the meaning of this, but if you pay attention to that scripture, you might discover uh, that it's pretty complicated. <laughs> so let me just give you one example, and as I read this from the book of Colossians, just note that there's like a lot of different images or frameworks or ideas all going on in just a couple of sentences here. Paul writes and he says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's a lot. You have uh, legal language, debt language, carrying away language, powers language. You have all this different stuff going on there. And I don't know about you, but like, I could, I could like, sit with that text for a very long time and frankly, maybe not be entirely sure what to make of it. So today, I wanted to spend a little bit of our time together um, walking you through some different ways that Christians around the world historically have made sense of this moment in Jesus' story. What does it mean to say that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried? Why, why do we care? Why is it there in the creed? Why do we wear crosses? Why does it seem to be so important? Why does the scripture talk about it so much? It turns out that over the last 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have developed some different ways of thinking about this. And I want to move you through some of these historical models for a moment. That being said, right now, my sense is that some of you are on the edge of your seat. This just sounds scintillating to you. Like, you miss school. You're one of those ones, right? You're like... You're about to pull out the notepad, you're very excited. Others, like your eyes rolling in the back of your head, you're looking for your shopping list, you're thinking, great. 
You're feeling anxious because this feels like a test is about to be like, put on you to see if you get the right answers on a theology exam. Let me reframe this differently if I can. When I tell you that we're going to um, sort of move through some different historical reflections on what the cross means, let me give you another image uh, for what that could be like. Uh, last summer, uh, on the sabbatical that this church really um, generously blessed me with, I was over in Los Angeles for a while. And one day in Los Angeles, I had a, a buddy of mine visiting. He's an artist. His name is Scott. Scott's actually the artist who painted uh, these four uh, canvases that are on our wall there. And so Scott and I were in L.A. together for a, a while hanging out. And Scott and I went to uh, one of the museums of modern art in Los Angeles. And we walked around there. Now, I don't know how you feel about modern art. I don't know if you love it, if you feel like you get it or not. Um, there's parts of it that I really love, and there's a lot of it that I, I don't get, and I just kind of don't understand why it's hanging in a gallery and worth anything at all. And yet, there's, there's like things sometimes I see in modern art that I feel really compelled by. And I had this really striking experience with my friend Scott, who's not just an artist, but who's really well-trained in design and in the history of art. And it kind of went something like this. We were moving through the museum, and I would find myself kind of drawn toward a work of art, and I wouldn't always know why. Maybe I just found it beautiful or interesting or uh, surprising. Or maybe I felt inside that it was drawing me or like doing something in me, although I couldn't quite name what it was. Maybe it stirred up an emotion or a memory. But like I'd be walking through the museum with all this art, and out of all that art, certain pieces would kind of call to me, and I would move toward them and stand in front of them. And then a few times what happened is Scott came and stood next to me, and we're there shoulder to shoulder just kind of contemplating this work of art. And we sometimes kind of stand there quiet and just take it in, each of us. But then if I asked him a question, perhaps, Scott would explain a little bit to me about what he saw there. And the fact is, Scott's eye is better than mine. Like, he just, because he understands this history and he knows some of these details to look for, I had the privilege of standing next to sort of a sage in the world of all that art, and we contemplated these beautiful things together, and he helped me go just a little bit further into what they might mean for me. And it really, it increased my experience of this art. I'd like to say that what I'm about to do ought to feel a little bit like that. What I'm saying is we're about to sit shoulder to shoulder, side by side with some of the sages of Christian history. And together, we're just gonna contemplate this strange moment at the heart of the Christian story, which is Jesus crucified, dead, and buried. And shoulder to shoulder, listening to them, we're gonna see what they might have to say about it and see if it just moves you a little bit closer into the heart of the story that's at the heart of like, what it means to to trust God in the Jesus story in the modern world. That's the plan. Son, you guys up for it? Good. All right, let's get a little work going here. Um, these models, these different ways of thinking tend to have names that have been come up with by theologians. These are different sort of schemes or strategies or philosophies for like what the death of Jesus might mean. I'm going to put them on the slide for you one by one. First is Christus Victor. So this goes back uh, to the, like the pretty early days of the church. And the basic idea in Christus Victor is that Christ has been victorious in a battle. This is battle language. And the idea is that somehow going into the cross and at the moment of the cross, a kind of cosmic battle was waged between God on the one side and evil or Satan or the powers of the world on the other side. And that in this battle, ultimately, Jesus was victorious. Now, you might have lots of questions about, well, why is there a battle, or who's battling whom? We're like, I'm going to fly pretty quick here, but the, the basic idea here is that um, Jesus was victorious, and the cross was the way that he won that particular battle. Now, um, sort of alongside that pretty early in the history of the church is another theory that you might call ransom theory. Ransom theory runs with, for example, a text in the book of Mark where Jesus says the Son of Man gave his life 
as a ransom for many. Now, ransom and Christus Victor, one thing they have in common is just like Christus Victor, where God has to defeat this other enemy like evil or Satan so that we can be saved, so that we can be free. Ransom also has God dealing with like a third party so that we can be saved or we can be free. When you hear ransom, a lot of the thinking around this goes that like we are somehow either held hostage or held as slaves, enslaved people, that some, somehow this other thing, whether it's Satan or evil or the powers, somehow we're like owned or claimed or held by them and a price has to be paid to secure our ransom. The train's loud today. Um, so in ransom theory, like Christus Victor, God has to do business with this other party so that we can be liberated or made free, right? Both of those uh, come from a long time ago. I will say Christus Victor and Ransom, even though they come from like the early centuries of the church, they've seen an interesting sort of resurgence in the last couple of decades among some theologians. Uh, let's fast forward roughly 700 years to the Middle Ages. Now it's uh, the 1100s, it's the 12th century, and a guy named Anselm is trying to make sense of what the death of Jesus would mean, what it did for us, and why it was able to do that. And Anselm casts this in the language of honor and shame culture. Now Anselm's living in a feudal society where you have vassals and lords. You remember all that stuff from history class, right? Where you have this sort of uh, built up, highly stratified caste system in Europe. And in the village or in the society there, the, the people who enjoy the higher tiers of status there are afforded more honor. And for things to work the way they're supposed to work inside that system, if dishonor is shown towards somebody who's higher up in the caste system, that has to be rectified somehow. Their honor has to be satisfied. And in Anselm's rendering, Jesus' sacrifice sort of makes up for all the ways that we haven't shown honor to God. Now, when you hear sacrifice, I don't know what you think about sacrifice. Maybe you quickly think of like sacrifice as a way to deal with guilt or to like make a payment for sin. Anselm's talking about sacrifice, but he's not necessarily talking about guilt or, or sin in that sense. Let me give you this example, see if it helps. Uh, imagine you're at Thanksgiving dinner, and you sit down to the table, and you sit down and you look around the table, and you realize that all the seats are taken, which is great. You've got your seat. But then your great-grandmother walks in, and there's no seats left for her. Now, I don't know what you feel or think in that moment, but a lot of us probably imagine, maybe I want to get up out of my seat and sacrifice my seat for her, right? I want to give it up to honor her. Now, you're not doing that to, like, pay some debt that you owe your grandmother, right? Not in the sense of, like, financial debt. You're not doing it because you think you did something wrong earlier, and now you've got to sacrifice that chair to make up for the wrong that you committed earlier. This is all honor stuff, which is different than, like, payment stuff or punishment stuff, right? This is just... It's right that she should be honored, and the sacrifice is the way that I will offer that honor. That seems to be something like the way Anselm is thinking about Jesus' death. It satisfies the honor of God in a way that we haven't. So far, so good? Okay, we're halfway through the models. We just have three more. Uh, let's talk about penal substitution. Fast forward another 400 years, and now you're in like the 1500s, and you have the Reformation. And one of the big theological things that came up out of the Reformation is sometimes called penal substitution. Uh, a couple of names you might have heard before, Martin Luther and John Calvin, in some ways they're working with this big idea. For them, uh, our sin, our wrong, the way that we've broken God's law demands punishment, right? And for God to be just, for God to be righteous, like God has to demand a punishment for the wrong. 
And if God doesn't demand punishment for the wrong, then God is no longer just or righteous, right? I don't know why I remember this, but in summer camp, I was like in first grade, and there was a guy that wore a t-shirt around, which as I say this, you're going to think I went to a weird summer camp, and the answer is probably. But the t-shirt said, the righteousness that he requires is the righteousness that his righteousness requires him to require. That's penal substitution. For God to remain God's own righteousness, God's got to demand us to be righteous. And the fact that we're not righteous, the fact that we sin, that we've broken God's law, means God's got to inflict some kind of punishment. So that penal punishment shows up there, right? But then the deal is if we get the punishment that we deserve, we're not going to survive it. Like it's just not going to work for us, right? So instead Jesus gets entered into the equation as a substitute and God gives Jesus the punishment that we deserve. And so in this way, God has solved God's problem, right? That God needed to demand a punishment, but God didn't want to punish us. So in Christ, God takes that punishment upon God's self. That's um, penal substitutionary atonement, sometimes called PSA. Uh, let's move on to another theory. I put this one late in the list because it, it kind of moves into a whole different way of like, thinking about these things. But it's not a late theory. It's actually an early theory that develops centuries before what I just told you. It's sometimes called moral exemplar or moral influence. And the idea here is roughly something like this. That in Christ, when God demonstrated what self-sacrificing love looks like, it unleashed this new sort of moral current in the world, this sort of this moral influence, this example that like, made it possible for us to imagine a, a whole different way of being human and relating to one another that, that, that example of God like showing or exampling that kind of love set loose a way of loving in the world. Now, in my experience, when I talk through these theories with people, this is the one that like, makes people feel it's like a little squishy. Like, it feels a little like, I don't know, new agey or loose. I'll just point out, this one predates a lot of the ways you've heard the cross talked about. This one is centuries older in its original articulation. Uh, but it's not one that gets a lot of airtime in the West. It's not one that you've probably heard about and you grew up like in evangelical churches. One more note. This last one gets me so excited because I'm a theology nerd. And it's actually the case that like in our lifetime, a new atonement theory emerged that has had a lot of sway among people. I think that's pretty cool. Um, this you could call scapegoat. And it comes from a guy named Rene Girard. Uh, Girard, uh, I think he died... Not too long ago, uh, he was actually a Frenchman who ended up at Stanford. He's an anthropologist, and he's not trying to be a theologian. He, as an anthropologist, he's asking one big question. Where does violence come from? Why, why do we commit violence? Why do societies become violent? And he's an anthropologist, that's why he's asking the question, but he turns to literature to try to understand it. And his idea is that if you survey the, the really significant works of literature through human history, you might find that we've encoded some insight in those works of literature. And so he does this kind of masterful job. And whether you agree with Gerard or not, he has a lot of credibility to this day in the academy that, that the case that he made about where violence comes from is pretty compelling. Now, I have, I'm not even talking about Jesus yet. I'm just talking about human violence. Let me get you that far and then show you how Jesus shows up in Gerard's theory that you could call scapegoating. So for Gerard, he says, first of all, from his observation, both in all of this human literature and in human societies as an anthropologist, first of all, he says, we only want what we want because we see other people wanting it. By that, he comes up with this idea of like mimetic desire, a meme. Think about a meme that spreads, right? So for him, desire is mimetic, meaning it travels like a meme, 
meaning I want what I want because I see you wanting it too, right? Think about like that day in high school where the cool kid walked in wearing the cool shoes you'd never heard of before, right? Like you, you never heard of those shoes. You don't like, have some intrinsic inherent desire for those shoes that came up from within you. It's that you're in the social environment where the desirable person is wearing the desirable shoes and the reason the shoes are desirable is because they're on the desirable person. You see somebody else wanting them because they're wearing them and so now you want them too, right? So he says you only want what you want because you see other people wanting it. Now the next move he makes is the problem here is that means in a situation with limited resources, everybody ends up wanting some of the same things. But if we all want the same thing and there's not enough of that thing, then you and I have a competitive problem between us, right? So you got it, right? Desire grows through this kind of contagion, this kind of mimetic movement that like, I want what I want because you wanted it. So then we end up wanting the same thing, which means we end up competing for the same things. And the fact that there are scarce, limited resources that all, like, we can't all have as much of it as we want. This creates competition or tension between people. And this doesn't just happen on individual levels. It happens on the levels of groups and whole societies. So you've got a whole human race all wanting some of the same things because wanting spreads, right? Which means we, we start to want to be violent toward one another. Then he says this thing happens over and over again in all of the stories and in all of the societies, which is an escape valve is created to let off some of that violent pressure between us. Sometimes the way he renders it, and I'm not trying to use crude language here, this is actually sort of how it goes in the archetype of these stories, is that the virgin is sacrificed. Another way of talking about it is that a scapegoat is created. So rather than like me directing my violence against you, and you directing your violence against me, we turn those violent energies against the third party and we commit violence against that third party and that releases all the pressure. And then for a while, we go back to our normal sort of relationships until the cycle repeats itself and we start wanting all the same things again and start competing for the same things and then feeling violent toward one another again. And then you need to have, once again, the kind of scapegoat thing that releases all that violent pressure. Is everybody hanging with me so far? You guys are so impressive. I'm very, very proud of you. Okay. So he looks for examples, like in scripture, you have the actual scapegoating that happens at the Passover, where the sins are put on the two animals, and one of them is sacrificed, and the other is cast out into the wilderness. That's scapegoating in the literal sense. And for Gerard, scapegoating is the whole sort of mechanism of us taking our violent urges and putting them on a third thing so we don't hurt each other, right? Now, if you watch politics, you can see this kind of thing happen. The more social tension there is, the more we feel like angry or disaffected that we're not getting what we deserve in the world, the more you're gonna see political leaders tell their people, I know you're not happy. You know why you don't have what you need? You know why you don't have what you want? Those people, that group, they're the ones, they're the reason that you don't have what you want and they can direct all that violent energy against a scapegoat, which is often a marginalized group of people. And you don't have to think long about history or even the current moment to see that kind of ugly violence happen in the political sphere. For Gerard, this is all connected. So you have Gerard, and he's working through human literature, and he's kind of developing this theory. And then Gerard notices something that strikes him. He says, first of all, the Jesus story is an example of this. The violence committed against Jesus, you can feel in the Gospels that you have religious leaders and you have these different factions inside the Israelite people. You also have the dynamic of the Roman Empire and all of that sort of 
fervor and uh, turmoil gets built up and then directed against Jesus to satisfy the violent urges of the crowd, okay? So you have Jesus being scapegoated. But the thing that Gerard notices is that when you read the gospel accounts, in real time, the people seem aware of the fact that Jesus didn't deserve it. That there's this sort of consciousness in the story of Jesus that he was an innocent victim all along. And what happens when you realize that your violent urges and your competition with others leads you to kill the innocent is that sort of comes back at you as a confrontation, right? And for Gerard, this whole scapegoating thing in the Jesus story, what happened is that it sort of dismantled that because we realized that when we let this cycle continue among us of competition for resources and mimetic desire and scapegoating, we end up killing the innocent. And for Gerard, he would say that something happened in the Jesus story that tilted humanity in its relationship to violence. That we became a little more sober-minded about what actually happens when we let these violent energies play out. Now, I know that might have been a bit heady, um, but that's the last sort of angle I want to give you on these different renderings of what happened when Jesus died. Now let's go back to the love stories that we told at the beginning. I'm going to try to make this make sense. I think it's going to come together. I really hope. I think we're going to get there. I believe in us. Um, I, spent, I spent years studying these atonement theories. I'm interested in them. I grew up in church my whole life, and I heard a lot about the cross, but I wasn't always sure what we meant by it or why it mattered. And then I found out that different Christians feel very strongly about which of those models you use, and they feel that some are more legitimate than others, and you can sense people kind of working their way through Scripture and trying to figure this all out. But I, I was working through this again this week because I knew that we were going to be here on Sunday during Lent hearing that lie from the creed that he was crucified, died, and was buried. And I was thinking to myself, like, what, what do you say about this long history of interpretation of like, what the death of Jesus might mean for us? And I was thinking, too, about like, my core conviction is that whatever is going on at the cross, it's love being expressed and revealed. And I got my scriptures for that, too. But that whatever, whatever is going on at the cross, it is love being expressed and revealed. And then I thought about the stories of my own life of love. And so often, when I have felt most loved, it's when somebody else saw me in a situation and they got down inside that situation with me. They expressed some kind of solidarity, right? It's my buddy Carp saying, oh man, you're grieving? I'm gonna, I'm gonna get on the train and come grieve with you, right? It's me in college um, when I hospitalized myself for depression. I'm in the psychiatric ward and it's the people who like, literally walked into that room and visited me. And to this day, I can literally see their faces when they walked in there and what it felt like to have them come and get inside that experience with me, right? Because if love is anything, it's solidarity, right? It's I'm with you in it. I'm not going to stand at a distance from you and what you're going through. That's so often what love feels like. And what struck me is like wherever you go with these theories of atonement, that through 2,000 years, what people have been doing is they've been reading scripture and looking upon the cross and their own experience of Jesus who dies for us, and then looking around their world and like grabbing up whatever they can find of their own life and experience and context to make sense of it. And it seems that God is totally willing to work with that. And that to me feels a little bit like love. So let me go back in time. So when you have the Christus Victor model that emerges, this is in a time and place when for these people, battlefields are not historical sites that you visited on a field trip in middle school. Battlefields are places in your land that you walk by every day and you know the names of the people who fought there because they were your actual neighbors. Battle is a, is a primary experience for these people, actual battles. 
And those people looked at what was going on with Jesus on the cross, and they tried to make sense of it, and they looked at the scriptures, and they found a metaphor right next to them. And God seems to have been quite happy to meet them inside that metaphor, right? Satisfaction, Anselm, he's a feudal system occupant, living in a, in a world where honor and shame is everything. And God seems quite content to have used the context of his life and everything going on around him to meet him with some meaning of the cross. Substitutionary atonement, the, the penal stuff, uh, Luther and Calvin, are, or Luther's training to be a lawyer, Calvin is a lawyer. And so of course they reach for a legal metaphor. They, they spend their life in that sort of imagination for what's wrong in the world and how you make things right in the world. Uh, I could go on and on. Gerard um, is asking a question a lot of us are asking today, which is what do we do with violence? And that question drives him to a profound encounter with a way of reading the cross event. Uh, there's a theologian um, I really love, a lot of you are fans of as well, named Richard Rohr, and he says, God loves things by becoming them. Which is not just I'm with you in it, I'm, I'm literally in it all the way, right? So the incarnation, I mean, God in flesh, that's God taking on human experience. The death of Jesus is God going all the way into human experience. But what I'm also saying is for the last 2,000 years, I even think the theological reflections of the church have been an example of God loving things by becoming them. You, you live in a world where your only imagination is battle? Cool, I will meet you inside that metaphor. Got it. You live in a world where the entire ordering of things is settled through honor and shame? Well, if that's the world you're in right now, I will meet you in that. I'll work with you inside that, right? You've been in the courtroom all day long? All you know is penalties and laws and, and payments? Great, I will meet you inside those metaphors of that because I love you so much, I will meet you in whatever world you have right now, however you're living and thinking and loving, right? Uh, you're living in a world that's really wrestling with violence because we keep seeing it and we keep trying to figure out what we're going to do about it. I will meet you in an analysis of that violence and, and give you another way of like, hanging your hat on the cross and knowing that I've met you in all of that. Whatever we're feeling, whatever we're facing, love meets us in it. And I even think that these sort of strange academic reflections on what the cross could possibly mean, I think even those are somehow God loving us. Um, in Mark's gospel, at the end when Jesus has just been crucified, uh, one of the centurions, one of the Roman officials who's executing Jesus, has this reflection. When he, the centurion, stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. And I could preach a whole sermon just on this moment here. But here the centurion like, sees Jesus on the cross in the shame and suffering of that experience, and yet somehow knows that's God up there in a circumstance that seems very unrecognizable as divine, right? And that sentiment has been playing out for 2,000 years. We keep discovering that God is wearing human clothing and meeting us in our suffering and putting the world back together in ways that make sense with our imaginations right now. Um, this also tees up one other note that I want to make for us for the next couple of weeks before we come to the table. Um, Religion at its worst tells us that, like, you no longer have to be mortal. You don't have to be human anymore. You don't have to die. And I think faith at its best becomes a way of facing our own dark shadows and difficult days, right? And um, whether it's these big academic systems of trying to make sense of the cross or whether it's just the fact that you see Jesus there suffering a very human experience of death, however you find your way there, 
I hope we remember that Jesus didn't just die so that we don't have to, so that we can somehow avoid what it is that it means to be human, but rather Jesus died to show us how to. That in every era, in every system of thought, in every culture, in every experience, God has been inhabiting human experience, human ideas, human metaphors to meet us in the depth of our experience, which includes dark days and graves. And um, what we're going to do the next couple of weeks is try to just make that more real for us. Not that we just kind of stand back and contemplate the artwork and think how great that God has done that. But then we turn back to our own lives and ask where, if it's actually the case, that God has inhabited this death, then the dying that life calls us to, the graves that we have to go into sometimes, don't have to be things that we avoid. We can go into them bravely with him, right? Um, There's this passage in Matthew that speaks of discipleship. Jesus says this to his friends, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And I think in earlier seasons, I thought that was you know, mostly about like, doing really, really hard things for the mission. And I think it can be sometimes. Sometimes that means doing hard things for the mission of the church, for what God's doing in the world. More often these days, I think it's just that when we walk through life, we find there are crosses waiting for us, whether we like it or not. And Jesus is saying that if you're going to follow me, you're going to realize that you don't find God by avoiding that. You find God by going into it. You find the divine by going all the way into whatever hard things are facing you in your life. I have this picture of, um, you know, a young child afraid of the closet that the boogeyman might be in there. And the parent comes in and says, well, I'll go in there with you. I'll show you, right? And the parent goes in and they turn on the lights and the parent goes all the way into the closet. And they say, see, there's no boogeyman here, no monsters. And like somehow that's what God has been doing in this entire descent from heaven into his human life all the way to the grave. And even in these theological reflections that we've offered ever since, that God keeps going all the way into the human experience, into the human story, into the human loss, saying, you can go all the way in there too. It's okay. Like, don't be scared. Uh, Next week, we'll hear from a couple in our church who have their own story of some hard letting go some dreams and some visions of their future that have um, died in some really painful ways, but you're going to hear how they're walking through that, um, what it looks like for them to try to walk through those things with faith. I think that'll be a, a very like, humanizing and powerful Sunday for us as a community because I think we all have our own version of that. The following week, uh, don't miss this. We're going to have a chance to reflect together as a community, to practice, to think about where it is that we're being called to face the deep and hard parts of our own lives. And today, the, the baseline I want to lay is simply that God's already gone into those things with you. God's all the, already gone all the way into those things with us. Like everything that is human, everything that is human, whether it's battlefields or courtrooms, whether it's joy and hope or death, everything that is human, God has already inhabited. Because God loves things by becoming things, and God loves us, and God loves humanity. And so we don't have to avoid our humanity. We can go all the way into it together. I'll share this one other text with you from 1 John while I prepare the table for us here. Um, I appreciate this text because when I get all hung up on fancy academic theologies, this one kind of brings me home. The writer says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So I want to ask those who are going to serve you at the table today to join me on the stage. And as they do, I will remind you that while I'm a big fan of um, historical theology, 
The, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he didn't give his disciples an academic theory. He gave them a meal. And he said to them, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. And later in that meal, he took a cup, and he held it before them, and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant, of a new promise forged in my blood. This is the promise of the enduring, unending love of God. Take and drink deeply. So I'll pray for these elements, and then I'll serve those who will serve you, and then uh, once they're in their places, you're free, if you'd like, uh, to get up out of your seat and go to the table. And if you can't make your way to the table, just raise your hand, and we'll come to you. But let's pray. Loving God, we thank you uh, for this sacred meal that you have given us. And while I hope that we will do our best thinking about what you have done for us, uh, even more than that, I hope that we will taste the goodness of your gift. I pray we will know the love that meets us in our human experience. In every era, in every way of thinking, that we will know the love that meets us in our human experience. And all of our suffering, that we will know the love that meets us in human experience. That you have loved us, and therefore you have become us. I pray this meal would be for us today, your life given for us and for the world. And we thank you, and we pray through Christ. And we all said, amen. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you.
theology lecture. Good job. Um, I hope you don't lose the forest for the trees there. These are many different ways of getting at the love of God uh, revealed in a peculiar moment in time in the body of Jesus. And that um, will ground us as we make our way toward Holy Week, Good Friday, and Easter. A quick note, uh, some of you signed up for our new to SBCC table that's happening right after our gathering. If you already signed up, we'd love to see you. We'll be right up there in the mezzanine to hang out for a bit. If you didn't sign up, we would not love to see you there because uh, we don't have any seats left or food for you. Um, but you can sign up for another one. Just go to southandcitychurch.com. You'll see new to SBCC table. We have a Zoom table meeting tomorrow night. Uh, you can catch that one right around the corner, or you can look forward to a future month opportunity to get to know us and for us to get to know you a little bit more. Uh, that being said, I hope you know the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, our Lord, that God has loved us by becoming us all the way into the human experience. 
that every dark corner, every dark grave has been illuminated by God who's gone into those things with us that we may walk out into resurrection together. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you soon.